So hi, I'm Dr. Mike Edwards from St. Louis, Missouri, CEO of the Schuster Center. And we are here at the Hermosa Inn at the Transitions and Lifestyle Planning Meeting. And I'm joined this morning by Mary Isaacs. Good morning. Good morning. And uh, could you just state the name of your practice and where you're from? Uh, my practice is named Artisan Dental, and I'm from Winter Springs, Florida, right outside of Orlando. Yeah, and are you from Florida originally? No, actually, I grew up in South Bend, Indiana. So how'd you get to Florida? Parents retired. My dad was successful. He retired at 55, moved, moved the kids to Florida. Well, that's nice. Yeah. And what did you think when you moved to Florida? Were you excited at that time? How old were you? Oh, yeah, I was 14. Okay. So, yeah, it was actually a good, it was a good transition year. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, I liked the beaches, Florida lifestyle. Yeah, so, so you stayed. I remember, because uh, we've known each other for a long time, I remember a few years ago, we had a meeting in Nebraska, and you showed up with a coat. And how, tell me about the coat. The coat <laughs> the coat was a long wool jacket um, that I wore when I was doing my residency out in Kansas City, Missouri. So um, it was about 25 years old. <laughs> yeah, not much need for a coat in Florida. <laughs> not at all. Is there? <laughs> no. No, so, uh, so how long have you been a dentist? Um, since 1992. So, 92. Yeah, All right. almost 30 years. A couple years longer than me. Not many, but a couple. Mm-hmm. And why did you get into den- dentistry? Well, when I was young, um, I had a big gap between my front teeth. I never smiled in any of my elementary school pictures. And then finally, sixth grade, I decided to get this big old smile on my face. And I just didn't like it. And I also have an identical twin sister who looked just like me. So through that process of having braces, it helped my self-esteem and just giving people back their smiles um, was important to me. But back in the 1970s, there weren't a whole lot of females going into dentistry. And I graduated really high in my high school class, and I went to the guidance counselor and said, hey, I'm really interested in dentistry. Well, he said, be a hygienist. So I did, and um, it was good, but I decided to finish up my bachelor's degree. And as I worked as a hygienist in a um, more of a production-based dental practice, and I decided that I wanted to go back to dental school. So that happened in 1988. And how long were you a hygienist? For about four years. Okay. And what did you think about dentistry at that point? Um, back then, a person had a problem. We took care of their problem. So it was very disease-focused. Mm-hmm. Um, as a hygienist, we were always moving people towards health, but they still had the disease. So you come in, you have a cavity, oh, we need to fix it. So. I think we were taking the disease away from people without them even realizing they could have prevented it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That must be, uh, it must be interesting being on the dentist side of it now when you work with hygienists because they know that you know. Exactly. You know, yes. so it's yeah. kind of like you can't pull anything over on, on you. No, not at all. No. no. Have it, has anybody tried anything like that over the years? Um, you know, I think sometimes the hygienists focus on cleaning teeth, cleaning teeth. And, you know, we try to focus that that's not their role. Their role is really to try to get, you know, the knowledge there so people can make good decisions for themselves to get themselves healthy. And sometimes, you know, hygienists think of themselves as tooth scrapers. Mm-hmm. And that really isn't their major role. You know, they're really healthcare providers, you know, to move people towards health. So how are they taught in, in hygiene school? Uh, they're taught preventative dentistry, you know. And I then mean, once they get out, what happens? Uh, time. I think even right now in a corporate world, um, you know, they have a half an hour and they got to get everything done in a short period of time. And the one thing that probably doesn't happen is that relationship with the patient, oral hygiene instruction. And, you know, they just got to get the tartar off the teeth. So it just becomes like an automated mouthwash, like yes. a car wash. Yes, yes. You're just coming in and getting your 
you know, getting everything removed so you can have a fresh start. Mm-hmm. Um, at your office, I'm sure they don't have a half hour hygiene appointment. No, no, we spend at least an hour. Yeah. Um, even I do patient process. A lot of corporate offices they'll put their new patients through hygiene first. And um, when I was a hygienist, I worked at a lot of different offices. Every different office had a different culture, you know, and the leader, which was the dentist, kind of set the tone of the practice. So they're very different offices I worked in. Some of them reused things. Now, this is back in the 80s, but um, that doesn't really happen anymore. But the office environment was was different. And some of, you know, some of the offices gave me a half hour to do everything, take the x-ray, see the new patients, you know, and to me, that model, um, it didn't work for me. So when I started my practice, I started my practice uh, within another practice, and I was given one chair, one key person, and I had to go through another teaching institute um, to learn how to do practice management. But it was a very busy, busy model. Like I'd um, see a new patient, and then while the dental assistant was taking the x-rays, I had to go see the crown and then do a hygiene check. And it was busy, and... I was getting kind of stressed out about it because I thought there was something wrong with me. And then I realized there really wasn't anything wrong with me. It was the model that I was put in. And, um, you know, I was kind of disheartened with dentistry a little bit, you know, and, you know, I wasn't making a lot of money back then. But within two years of starting that practice from, from scratch, I had enough to be able to buy all the assets, half the assets, and I had my own practice. So we worked as a solo group practice. The other doctor continued working with that busy production-based model. And, you know, I I got kind of frustrated with that, too, because we'd have our morning huddles, and it seems like the patient had a dollar sign stamped to their forehead, you know, instead of, you know, trying to do what's best for them. It was more about what is the patient giving us. And, Mm -hmm. And again, that created some what I call structural tension for me, and it helped me move into a different direction. So um, about 2005, sort of fast-forwarding, 2006, I was at, at a Seattle study club meeting, and this gentleman came to lecture, and his name was Dr. Mike Schuster. And they always say um, when the student is ready, the, teach, the teacher appears, and he walks by, and he throws one of his CDs on my right in front of me. So I listened to it, and from then on, I realized... It, it wasn't me, it was actually the model. So through the Schuster Center, I did the management program for two years, and we changed the structure. So at that time, you were a solo group practice, yes. meaning that, if I understand you correctly, correctly, you had a practice inside a practice, mm. and then the other doctor stayed, was he an associate of yours, or was he... No, she, she, she was, had her own practice. So she, you both had your own practice mm-hmm. inside the same facility. Yeah, we only shared, like, rent... Um, small overhead. We didn't share staff. And so our practices ran very differently under the same roof. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So what would the, what was that like for the front office? We didn't share staff. So you didn't share anything? No, we shared. Only thing we shared was assets, um, liability insurance. Uh, we did a rolling average on um, like office supplies, dental supplies. So what did your team think? Your team watching that side versus your side? Uh, it was a little different. You know, like... <laughs> It worked just because we were two separate offices. I think the community thought that we were one practice. Mm-hmm. But she started changing a little bit, too. She started seeing her new patients, you know, first. So that started changing. But, you know, she didn't get into a lot of photography or, you know, um, teaching pe- people, you know, what they needed to do to get healthy. Like, again, that model was still busy, busy, busy. So you had, you really had a philosophy of care at that time. You just couldn't pull it off. Right, Exactly. 
And that's where the, you know, I'm, it's very common in a lot of these interviews I do that there's a, I call it a crisis of coherence between the brain and the heart. And we're taught one thing and we see what's out there for the modeling and that's what we do, but it's a, it doesn't match what our heart wants or our philosophy or what our values or soul work is. So this is where you come into the crisis and then you're looking for that teacher. Show yeah. me the model, show me the way. And then as soon as you see it, it resonates with you and you go. So for so you see Dr. Schuster, he lays a CD down. And how what did you think when he through the enrollment process of getting into the center? Um, he kind of took me where I was. Really no judgment. You know, this mm-hmm. is where this is where my financials were, you know, this is what I'm doing. Um, and it was kind of a tier. First we had to get the finances set, you know, and then we started looking at uh, the new patient process, you know, and then, then um, after the two-year management program, we did like a people engine, you know, with my staff got on board. I was flying my staff out to Scottsdale, Arizona about three three or four times. So I had to get the staff engaged as well because here's the other office. We're mm-hmm. practicing a different model. They're all on board, and the ones that weren't, you know, exited. So the people I have surrounded around me now, they believe in the model. They believe in moving pe- people towards health. Um, you can't do this alone, you know, but your philosophy as a leader is is what has to starts the whole process. Yeah, so back at that time, it was a one-year program, right? Um, you know, I don't even know. Or was no, it eight? I think it was about 18 months. So what year was this? I think it was 2007, 2006 to 2008. 2007 okay. Eight. 2008 is when I graduated. I see. I think I was 97 or 98. Mm-hmm. That time it was a year. Mm-hmm. And for us, we went down... We had a staff of 13 to start with. And we went down four times during the year and then one or two times by ourselves, just the doctors. Um, but it was incredible how rapidly the practice turned and transitioned. And, and what you focus on, what you pay attention to, actually is where you see improvement. And before, I was kind of just winging it. <laughs> like, oh, this is what we did at the end of the month. Okay. And then, you know, so I see. So you would wait till the end of the month to see what was left over. Right. That was profit. Yeah. And that's what I would pay myself with or or not. Sometimes I wouldn't be, wouldn't been able to. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's very common. I see this in, um, in Facebook discussion groups, it'll be a young dentist. And the question will be, when can I begin to pay myself? I've been practicing two years and it's that same old story. Let's wait to see what's left over at the end of the month. And we take that. That's what we made. Now, you walk through the Schuster Center, the first thing we do is money. So you get a budget in place. The team starts to track stats. And like you said earlier, where focus goes, tends to improve. Mm-hmm. Focus goes, energy flows. So it had to, uh, can you talk about how it felt knowing and not wondering what you were going to make, but just initially having that confidence in being able to run your practice from a financial standpoint and why, how that translates into being able to do the kind of dentistry you want to do. Well, I think we were being more reactive about the numbers and the practice and what was happening. And I think it puts you into more of a creative mindset to be proactive and you'll be able to watch and find out, well, Hey, why is this number not working? Oh, well maybe we had a sale on impression material and maybe that's why the budget was a little bit, you know, off but it makes you track it so you know where you need to improve on. Um, and then same thing with the new patient process. You know, we, we changed our new patient process, which also allowed us 
to spend more quality time with the patient to move them forward towards health. We changed, instead of me interviewing or just talking to the patient while I'm doing the exam, we bring them in and we want to find out, just like Dr. Schuster did, find out where are the patients, you know, where are they in their dentistry, what do they know, what is their past history, and then we try to find out um, where, where they want to go, you know, if they had to paint a, a picture of where they wanted to see themselves in a year or two years, what had to happen today to get them to that point. I take them through, a, you know, tell them a little bit about a dreadful story. You know, the, the dreadful story is that periodontal disease and tooth decay can be prevented, and most patients don't know that. And we just kind of walk them up the ladder to, to make them understand or that awareness um, and engagement process, you know, so they, they can move to whatever goal they want, you know, and we try to set goals. But it's more of a collaborative effort, more patient-focused instead of a, a pushing focus. So in the past, before the center, it was more of presenting or selling a treatment plan. Yeah, and selling was probably a good term. You know, in your heart, you always feel like, oh, I'm a dentist. I want to do it right for my patient. But, you know, they've got to want it. And they, you know, I would never do dentistry on somebody until they ask for it. Because then I'm doing something to them. I want them to ask for it because I want them to want the dentistry. And we've seen um, all different levels of patients. You know, some people don't want the cosmetic dentistry. Some people, you know, as long as they take care of their periodontal situation and their tooth decay, you know, I'm fine if they had crooked, dark teeth, you know. Mm -hmm. But if they want a higher level of dentistry, you know, then I definitely can offer that. The other thing, through the Schuster Center, um, I got involved with Performance Coach right after that. And Performance Coach is a program where you have like-minded dentists, um, you set goals, they hold you accountable, but the relationships that I formed with these dentists are on such a higher level than what I was getting at our local dental society. And Mm -hmm. uh, and, and truth, integrity, kind of elevates you. You know, people tend to build each other up. Let's say there's a lot of hugging going on, too. (laughs) But through that performance coach program, uh, I was able to meet the doctors, and I learned from them. So... I found about biostatic dentistry. I found out um, about other types of dentistry that I didn't even know existed. So that morphed my practice um, by getting additional training. Um, I also do sleep dentistry. And and in not traditional sleep dentistry, um, I got involved with sleep dentistry about 15 years ago. Uh, My husband, um, he was having a little chest pain and stuff, and so they decided to do a uh, heart catheterization, and they weren't too concerned. They didn't think it was anything, but he had five blocked arteries, and one of them was the Widowmaker. So most people don't survive that, but he had a 90% blockage, and so uh, he ended up having some stints placed and never had a heart attack, but my journey in sleep medicine started with him because his cardiologist sent him for a sleep study, and he had moderate sleep apnea, and there wasn't much around about sleep dentistry back then. So I kind of flew around the country, got some courses on how to do these mandibular advancement appliances. So it helps hold the airway open, but that's very similar to wearing a CPAP because the CPAP you wear for life, and so do you wear a mandibular advancement appliance. So through that journey of my husband you know, having his problems, I got into sleep dentistry. But now I got involved with a different organization that we actually do craniofacial development on children and adults. So that's another recognition you know, so, so you're moving back and saying, how can I help kids and adolescents before they get to this point exactly. in adulthood and then are plagued with sleep apnea for the rest of their life? But you also can do things for adults that have sleep apnea and treat that. So start with children and adolescents. What can you do for them? 
Well, children, when we look as a dentist, you know, I think in 2017, the ADA came out that, you know, we should be screening for sleep apnea or a sleep disorder. But we look at children, um, we look for maybe pooling under the eyes, little dark baggy eyes. We look for very narrow arches. We look for crowding, um, long, soft palates. Sometimes they have behavioral issues. Um, they can and be- And all that is from sleep apnea. All that is from sleep, sleep disorder what, breathing. What else is sleep apnea or sleep disorder breathing? How, are the, how else is that gonna affect a child? Their IQ, um, how they learn, bedwetting, social problems. Um, and a lot of the physicians start writing a prescription for Ativan or, you know, put them in behavioral therapy. And the sleep apnea and um, ADHD, they parallel, the symptoms parallel each other. So if we can treat the sleep, most oftentimes these kids start to thrive. So what happens, um, westernization is what, what caused the whole thing. Because back in, if you look at archaeological, you know, skulls, they had wide, full arches, 32 teeth. They were downward and forward growers. Well, you know, we fast forward four generations, and now we're clockwise growers, which means we have a deficient lower jaw, small upper arch. The tongue wasn't strong, and um, the way the tongue gets strong is we're eating, you know, so- solid foods and Gerber baby food and bottle feeding came. The tongue wasn't strong enough to go onto the roof of the mouth. That it acts like that scaffolding to make these wide arches. You know, and then, we, of course, we look at nutrition. You know, we look at all these things um, at, on these kids, and we coach the parents. You know, they can't be going to McDonald's, and maybe dairy's an issue. We look at allergies. So diet, mm. the diet drove the changes in how we grow. Yes, exactly. And the size of our arches mm. and our ability to, you know, our, our ability to um, really to swallow, what, when that reflex, when those things begin to happen and how those how those uh, structures develop that all changed because of our diet changes. Yes, you know, and again, it's that collaborative effort with other physicians, you know, get their pediatricians involved. Uh, maybe do pediatricians it, know as, as much as you do about these topics? Do you find that it's an uphill battle or do you just have to find the right provider? I think through the education process, you know, I, I send a lot of books out. There's several books on sleep. One of the newest ones, um, James Nestor wrote the book Breath, um, excellent mm-hmm. book, and he even had his own story, and he showed his own craniofacial development as an adult. So fast forward, we see these children grow up, and now we're treating their dental disease. You know, they have more tooth decay also, you know, when, when they have a sleeping disorder. So, you know, my mission in life is, is to save lives. And we now, do how does that happen? How do, how do you have more decay with sleep order disp- uh, breathing? Uh, part of it's nutrition, crowding at the teeth, you know, poor oral hygiene, mm-hmm. mouth breathers. Some of them end up having asthma. So with mouth breathing, how does that affect decay rates? Um, decay rates go up. Um, you know, the, it, the plaque becomes more sticky. It stays on the teeth more. They are more mouth breathers instead mm-hmm. of nasal breathers. Um, so the roof of the mouth is the floor of the, of the sinus and the nasal cavity. So they tend to be have really high palates. So they can't breathe through their nose. They're stuffed up. So they breathe through the mouth. Their tonsils get bigger. Bacteria accumulates if you're a mouth breather. So we try to promote nasal breathing. We've also incorporated myofunctional therapy. Into so it just practice. becomes a cascade. It does. One thing is just building on the other, and eventually you have a very compromised airway. Mm-hmm. And you have all the ingredients for more decay, gum disease, and bone disease. In addition to changes in metabolism and all the other things that happen uh, in the body due to not being fully oxygenated. 
Yeah, actually, in, in uh, James Nestor's book, he actually plugs his nose, and he started, his blood pressure was going up, he was gaining weight, he was suffering from depression, <laughs> yeah. and all these are affected by nasal breathing, and pe- most people are just blown away. Um, I had um, lunch with one of my pulmonologists, and he asked, actually asked me, he's a sleep physician, and he said, Mary, I think you know more about sleep than most of the physicians. And this was about 10 years ago. Again, there's a lot more education that was out there. Um, I think we could do better in educating our patients as dentists. And um, I want to be the one that helps these children grow up and not be my husband. So yeah. I, ha- I have my why. And you know, I'm passionate about sleep dentistry. I love doing restorative dentistry. But, you know, after their sleep's under control, we also have to, you know, help them be able to develop the arches and then go ahead and take care of their tooth decay and, you know, rehabilitation. So what's the order that you would treat someone that came in like this? If they had some immediate needs or, say, um, you know, any kind of gingivitis or periodontal disease, what's, what's the order that you would treat someone a lot of patients come into the practice, you know, as a new patient, they're going to stay with me. They want me to be their dentist. So you always have to start with a firm foundation, which is the gums, gums and bone. That has to be healthy, or it really doesn't matter what condition the teeth are in. So we start with the base, which is gums and bone. Then we go ahead and move up, and we look at um, tooth decay. So we got to make sure there's no tooth decay. Um, that's the foundation. And then we look at TMD. So temporomandibular joint disorder also parallels sleep. So we have to treat the TMD, so we end up putting them in an appliance that's called a MAGO or a a C2O appliance that actually centers the jaw joint in the proper position. Um, Once the TMD problem is taken care of, we address the sleep. Sometimes we address the sleep at the same time as the TMD. Uh, We also get a sleep study, and I always have them read by a board-certified sleep physician to make the diagnosis. We also have a cone beam, which is a 3D image of the jaw, the airway, um, the sinuses, so we can a- actually make a diagnosis on what the anatomy looks like and what do we need to do to develop, which direction do we need to go in developing the arches. Um, and then I get their physicians involved. Sometimes we work with a nutritionist. We'll work with a cranial sacral therapist. We'll work with an orthogonal chiropractor. It's a collaborative effort. It's a very exciting time to be a dentist because we're not just tooth fixers. We're not tooth scrapers. We're not you know, decay removers. We're actually the physicians of the mouth. We're health care providers. And I think our medical community, you know, are recognizing that, and um, it's exciting to be a dentist. I work with, um, you know, I've worked with some other dentists, and I'm mentoring a few dentists. They didn't realize this even existed, that we could really be recognized as physicians of the mouth. Yeah. I think it's interesting how, um, and I tend to see this just because of the roles that I have, is that as we, especially with Schuster grads, but as we improve the practice and have money under control and organization under control and get our people on board, this whole other world tends to open up. Yes, it has. It was not available to us before. No, and I don't know that I'd be a dentist right now practicing. Like, you know, I didn't want to be a hygienist. I couldn't be a hygienist for 20 years, and that's what prompted me to go on to dentistry. And then that practice model, I think I would have been burnt out and, and done. At least I recognized it early enough before I gave up. You know, people keep saying, oh, aren't you going to retire? You're, you're going to be 60. And I'm like, no, I'm just, I'm just getting going. I, I just love what I do, and I can't see myself stopping anytime soon. Um, service is one of my big, big core values and respect and moving people towards health. Yeah. Well, I think anybody listening to this would just be really impressed by you and your career and, 
you know, not only your passion for dentistry, but your passion for people and helping people. How would somebody contact you? Um, they would be able to call our office. Our, our phone number is 407-696-5210. And my practice name is Artisan Dental. So it would be www.artisandental.com. Our office at myartisandental.com would be ways to contact us. Yeah. And for a young dentist that may be listening to this, what are some mile, What are maybe three or four of the milestones you would say in your career that has got you to where you are today? Um, well, first, you know, I have um, gone to a, a big teaching institute to learn the restorative dentistry. I think without that, I wouldn't be able to pull it off. I, the biggest impact was joining the Schuster Center. You know, it changed the model, which allowed me to be able to do higher-end dentistry. I end up seeing fewer patients and be able to provide more in each one. It's just fun watching them go through this whole process, get healthy, and then we high-five, and we celebrate, and then they come back in, and then they refer their friends and their you know their family members they trust. We've seen three generations. It's just neat. So if I know that grandma had a problem maybe with her airway, we look at you know the grandchild and say, oh, we, we've got a problem here. We need to take care of it. So I think part of it's trust. You know, I think our, our patients trust us. Um, you know, we've had high in- integrity, you know, and I think it shows through every step of the process from the time they meet our, you know, new patient coordinator, the dental assistants, the hygienists. Um, I, I just think they feel the love. You know, I think it's about love. That's great. You know, so the patients are winning. Your team's winning, I'm sure. And you're winning. This is a, a, a as you gain profitability, in the practice, I mean, the, I, when I think about the stage of practice you're in, you're in the power years. You're a master dentist. Now, yes, you're going to keep learning. You're going to keep going. You're going to watch for new things. But you're a master dentist. But you also have the master business aspect there. So patients, um, how often would you say you're meeting your financial goals in your practice? Um, I think we, we pretty much hit them almost every month. <laughs> so the and, team yeah. is winning. I mean, this is yeah. my point is... That it, it is just this spiral, this another cascade, but in a positive way. Yeah, and everybody wants to work for a winning team, you know. And, um, you know, nobody wants to come to work and say, oh, you know, we're cash poor and can't we can't provide, you know, uh, 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 uniforms or you guys are going to have to wait and or having to cut hours. And I think it gives the staff stability, you know, and they're excited about coming to work because they truly are making a difference. It, it, you know, they're making a difference in these patients' lives, and I think that gets them excited, you know, about they're doing worthwhile work, they're getting paid fairly, and they're they're working, you know, with a winning team. Very mm. positive environment. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. Well, you're a treasure to dentistry, and I'm glad you're part of the performance coach community. Well, thank you, Mike. So thanks. <laughs> I, was this easy for you? Yeah, it was pretty was easy. Good? It was great. All right. <laughs> thank well, you. Thank you. <laughs> So we're going to join, rejoin the conference. We're going for breakfast now. Uh, our meeting will begin today with Tony Kong from PK Financial and then Aaron Mercer from Legacy Transitions. So we'll be doing more interviews today and throughout the weekend. Thank you.